0: Names um, of roles are very flexible in startups. You know, I think somebody could look at my role and say it is it is very much a COO role, or you know, a CEO might actually uh, participate in a lot of strategy work. Um, I think what really matters actually is 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 a person, uh, and I think what's really really important is when founders uh, look for uh, their. Um, you know the the role that's going to be their second, uh, you know, in command. That person needs to be hundred percent aligned to them, and and needs to have the same vision of where they're taking the company.
1: Hi, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by Sastock. I'm your host, Alex Thuma. And on this week's episode, I talk with Sarika Garg, Chief Strategy Officer at TradeShift, about walking the tightrope between tactics and strategy. Sarika was raised in Africa and India and moved to Silicon Valley about 20 years ago. 15 of them she spent working between SAP and Ariba, moving up the ranks of product management. When she felt she'd gotten too used to the comfy life that big organizations can create, Saruka jumped into the deep end joining TradeShift, first as VP of Product Marketing, then raising up to Chief Strategy Officer two years ago. At the time, the company employed 100 people, and she was the first CSO. Nowadays, the company employs 1,000 people, and at its last Series E funding round led by Goldman Sachs, it was valued at 1.1 billion. No wonder then that TradeShift is one of the fastest growing fintech companies in Silicon Valley. That has been achieved by navigating the complex network that TradeShift offers to businesses both with a disciplined long-term view, as well as timely day-to-day operational excellence. Both of those have fallen within the remit. Sarika has learned to walk the tightrope between tactics and strategy. Listen on to hear what should the role of a CSO be in a small company and how you know you need it.
0: In a smaller company, to me, a chief strategy officer becomes both a combination of st- a strategic role and an operational role, and uh, and you know, so I, I think a lot a lot about that. Like, do you who needs a chief strategy officer? Do you really need one, right? If you're a hundred people company or five hundred people company, and I think for TradeShift, being um, having a complex business model, right? We were a network company built on SaaS. We needed to somebody to have the longer term view while actually helping to drive execution now, right? So, drive execution with a long-term strategy in mind. I think for businesses that have a simpler business model, a COO might actually be a better choice. So, I think it's a, it's a, it's actually a choice between having a CSO or a COO that companies need to make.
1: How should companies navigate between long-term strategy and short-term execution?
0: So, uh, my job is always to start with alignment. And the first alignment is alignment with the board alignment with the founders and the ceo of uh, and and our exec team of where we are actually trying to go as as a company Uh, once we get that alignment uh, and an agreement uh, then we can actually help to drive it so it becomes uh, right from the point of how much money do we want to raise to how we want to structure the company uh, for us to be able to uh, get to our goals Um, so once, once I get the sort of alignment, um, my uh, thought has been uh, to, um, to almost kind of separate out teams that focus on execution of the tactical, you know, let's get the quarter done and, and the team that's looking at the long term and building maybe the products or the offerings for the long term.
1: How she makes the decision to pivot from her original strategy.
0: One is, um, I think, surgical go-to-market so, uh, you know, figuring out what's working, double down on it. But if something is not working, if something is not getting traction, then we all agree to pivot on it. And the way we've done this is, and, and by the way, this was actually quite chaotic about three, four years ago uh, when I was, you know, first joined TradeShift. And what we've actually tried to do is create a, adopt a framework to help us make those decisions better and uh, in, a, in an aligned way. So, um, if you've ever heard of Jeffrey Moore's Zone to Win, uh, so he actually has a framework in there which we've adopted. And frameworks are uh, great in the sense they bring p- people together. And as a company, we actually have quarterly meetings where we agree on, here are the things that we are driving for, here are the things we're gonna pivot on or, or, uh, or you know do more of, do less of or do more of. And, and so that's been really, I think, instrumental for us to actually create more focus, create more alignment and, and do the pivots where needed and uh, execute and drive for growth where needed as well.
1: Sarika will be joining us at West Coast on September the 11th in San Francisco, moderating a panel which will aim to tackle another common type tightrope SaaS companies need to navigate. How to split their focus between attracting new customers and retaining the existing ones. Joining her on that panel will be Shane Murphy Reuter, SVP of Marketing at Intercom, Omar Nawaz, Chief Product Officer at Chargebee, and Jason Reichel, CEO of GoNimbly. We have a few tickets left for Saslot West Coast, but not a lot, so be sure to grab one whilst you can. Go to saslot.com forward slash West Coast, and you'll be able to also see a link in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, uh, Sarika Garg, Chief Strategy Officer of TradeShift. Welcome, Sarika.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alex.
1: No, great to have you on the the podcast. Uh, and this is the first uh, time we've had somebody from TradeShift on. Very excited for that. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Who is uh, Sarika Garg?
0: Sure, sure. So um, I live in Silicon Valley uh, today. I, I actually uh, grew up in Africa and then in India. Uh, But I've been in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at TradeShift. But I've been in the B2B SaaS business uh, for some time, working at SAP, working at Ariba, uh, building uh, products for the Fortune 500 companies.
1: With TradeShift. Tell us a little bit about what they do. You know, um, how big is the company? When did you join? You know, are they venture backed? Uh, I mean, I, I know some of these answers, but uh, for the audience at home,
0: yeah. So I joined TradeShift when it was a hundred people. That was five years ago. Uh, we are now a thousand people, and uh, TradeShift is considered one of the fastest growing fintech networks um, in uh, in Silicon Valley. So. Um, it was valued at uh, $1.1 uh, last year when we raised, raised our Series E, and it was led by Goldman, uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, we are a very global company. <clears throat> we usually sell to the Fortune 500 or large enterprises. So, 125 of the uh, 500 Fortune 500 companies are customers of ours. And uh, what we do is we bring these customers on and we connect to the entire supply base. So we have about 1.5 million companies on TradeShift network today. So think of it as a LinkedIn network for businesses. And we have about half a trillion dollars worth of business that happens on TradeShift. So huge amounts of business happening on the TradeShift platform.
1: Yeah, amazing. I like the I do recall actually a few years ago my first encounter with TradeShift, it was very much like this sort of like viral effect whereby I think it was, I'm paying an invoice for a supplier. And then it obviously, once you're paying the invoice, it invites you, almost hooks you in to, uh, you know, very cleverly to, to signing up for the platform. You know, similarly, like with, with other suppliers, we, we, we see that uh, uh, today. So it seems like a, a great feature that's sort of been built into the product That's that probably helped with, uh, with some of this growth.
0: Right. I mean, in the past, it used to be that every supplier would have to have a different portal for each one of their customers. So you would have suppliers sitting there and just invoicing on different portals or on paper. Uh, to you know hundreds and thousands of customers, and now what we do is we consolidate all of that, so they log in once, they invoice once, and it can be sent to their different customers. Not only just it's not only about send that's the starting point sending of the invoice, but it's also you know if my address changes as a supplier, I can now send my change of address to everybody i can I can start uh, doing all these things and from one place right my all my business uh, needs.
1: Obviously, like you, you grew up in Africa and India. Um, and so, you, you know, you're from a diverse sort of background. Um, you know, what is, the, what is the role of the diverse experience in, in building a company today?
0: You know, as you know, this has been happening for many years. We're, you know, business is becoming global. Our clientele is becoming global. So I think um, having been almost an outsider all my, all my life, and coming from a very different perspective, um, you know, I have always l- felt like I can uh, understand and appreciate, and actually have deep empathy for people who are different, who don't sound like me, who don't look like me, and that actually helps uh, with uh, with your customers. But I think what's happening in Silicon Valley, especially, is, uh, or even even by the way, in UK, uh, as these hubs become uh, more and more important for companies, it's very difficult to hire. Within Silicon Valley or within UK, so every single company is having to create uh, a strategy which is quite global in terms of employee base. So how can I actually have an employee center in China or in uh, in you know in Kenya or something like that? And again, I, I feel my diverse background definitely helps me to think through that and uh, and figure out how we can uh, be very effective. In, in creating a global strategy.
1: Yeah, I, I I I totally agree, and and I mean specifically, obviously we've we've you know seen that in 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 SaaS or in, in tech in general, you know uh, around Silicon Valley and how you know I guess expensive it is to to live there and to hire people and uh, and that folks don't often um, you know, you know stay for for longer than a year and then you're sort of rehiring in in those positions, um, but then. Um, yeah, like the, there is this, uh, I, I think sort of like 2019 really is you know, been the year where I've seen sort of remote work um, really kind of becoming a, a major trend uh, and really kind of acceptable. And some companies, um, you know, go fully remote. So like So In fact, our, our, first, uh, our first ever sponsor for a SaaS conference, a company called ChartMogul, which was based out of Berlin. Uh, I think they've got about 30 uh, employees or so, and and now they've gone fully remote, which is interesting to go from a company that's based in one location to to, to fully remote. Um, But uh, definitely a a trend uh, I'm seeing happening.
0: Absolutely. And it's becoming easier and easier. 20 years ago, it was very difficult to work with somebody in Germany for me when I was at SAP. Today, we actually have video conferencing with every single one of our meetings is a video conference meeting. And it, it really makes a difference. You feel like you know the person, you can connect with them. And it's become much easier, much more effective uh, doing work uh, remotely now.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and even for us, I mean, I, I, I have to think, I mean, we're, uh, I think we're about 20 people based in London in the, the, the SaaS office, but we've got now got a contractor in Colorado. We've got two people that are working with us that are really kind of digital nomads, uh we've got somebody in Portugal uh and we we've got um someone in Hong Kong as well so uh we we're starting you know parts of the the, the company is starting to 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 be sort of remote and, and very global and we're just obviously hiring you know where the where the talent is uh but we still have our, our London expensive London office and uh, mo- most of the team there but um uh I, I di- digress we move from move from the the that sort of um uh, topic just uh to, Back to yourself, and I guess your your journey to TradeShift. So you mentioned obviously you've got this great CV. You were at SAP. Um, uh, was that SAP before TradeShift? Was that the um, uh, your previous employers?
0: Yeah, I was at SAP for yeah. fifteen years uh, before I joined TradeShift. Yes.
1: What pulled you to to join TradeShift? Um, you know, what was it?
0: Yeah, so that's a really good question, Alex. So. You know, I was uh, at SAP for 15 years. Uh, SAP was a great environment. I learned a lot. I changed and learned to do many roles. Uh, you know, I had a product role. Uh, I um, was part of a development team for some time. I uh, worked with customers in go-to-market roles. I actually worked on acquisitions with our co-CEO Jim Snabe for some time, but it was always in context of being with a very large company, and it and uh, you know it was 170,000 people, and you always felt like a number somewhat, and uh, and you knew there were like five people maybe doing the same job that you were, <laughs> so I always um, you know wanted to have uh, impact and wanted to know that I could I could really move the needle uh, faster um, in where I was, and five years ago I felt. It was time for me to take the big jump and go from something that was actually very comfortable to uh, to the unknown world. But knowing that I could potentially have a bigger impact and and uh, and do more with with my skills, so that's that's why I decided to move. Yeah, it was a big uh, decision at that time, but I'm I'm very glad I did it. It's it's been the best five years of my life for sure.
1: Were you the the first chief strategy officer at TradeShift, um, or was that was there somebody in the in in the role previously?
0: So I was, and and uh, I was the first chief strategy officer. In fact, you would ask, uh, do you really need a chief strategy officer in a startup? You know, most chief strategy officer jobs are uh, for large companies. So uh, you know, SAP has had a chief strategy officer. The current chief strategy officer, Deepak, is a, is a good friend of mine, but his role is actually significantly different from mine. Uh, so in in a smaller company, to me, a chief strategy officer becomes both a combination of st- strategic role and an operational role. And, uh, and you know, so I, I think a lot, a lot about that, like, do you, who needs a chief strategy officer? Do you really need one, right, if you're a 100 people company or 500 people company? And I think for TradeShift, being um, having a complex business model, right? We were a network company built on SaaS. We needed to somebody to have the longer term view while actually helping to drive execution now, right? So drive execution with a long term strategy in mind. I think for businesses that have a simpler business model, a COO might actually be a better choice. So I think it's a, it's a it's actually a choice between having a CSO or a COO that companies need to
1: make. Gotcha, makes, makes sense. And you you mentioned that obviously uh, trade shift is it's built on uh, on SaaS that uh, is is a fintech network. Um, you know how do you see SaaS and, and fintech coming together uh, in the future uh, for improved business models?
0: So I think there's there's a very interesting trend that's going on, and it's already happened in B2C. So just like Uber, OpenTable are basically platforms that build, bring multiple parties together, so suppliers and consumers, and they create all kinds of value which never existed. There's the same trend that's happening in B2B, right? So the B2B world moved from on-premise to SaaS about 10, 15 years ago, and now we're actually moving over to a network or marketplace model. So if you think of, you know, why did Microsoft buy LinkedIn, it's because they want to actually connect a network to their SaaS model, right? And so if you look at fintech, what's really happening is, uh, or the problem that we are tackling within TradeShift is actually all around trade finance, right? So you may have heard of the term supply chain financing, dynamic discounting, factoring. These are all various financing options that are available to a supplier in, in the B2B world. And they've been around for many, many years, but uh, the adoption is weak, the, processes, the t- process for me to be able to finance an invoice is lengthy, it's offline, there's middlemen involved. And so it's, it's really like expensive and hard and what happens in, in an environment in a world like this is the big guy or the big companies are okay. It's, it's a, always the small companies that get the, the short end of the stick. And so what we are trying to do is saying, let's actually bring trade over to one common platform, and then we can actually create standardized finance offerings to, uh, to all suppliers, regardless of whether they're large or small, regardless of the company country they belong to, because you know financing is often very much related to com- countries. I think the closest analogy I can take is for credit cards. So in our B2C world, we can very much get a credit card and go to one shop, use it, go to the next shop and use it. We want to create a similar credit card-like system for uh, the B2B world for suppliers to be able to get financing for, uh, for what they're selling. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. And so it's a very interesting combination of SaaS and fintech married together.
1: TradeShift itself, uh, you know, has been a, uh, you know, a high growth company, I, I guess, um, you know, probably from the from the start, right from the outset, it's, uh, you know, a big vision, it's a it's a big platform, big network now and with a 1000 over 1000 people uh, employed. And, uh, you know, with uh, with high growth, uh, there's often, you know, uh, tension and you know challenges within uh, a business, and you know there's often tension between tactics and you know strategy. Um, this can, you know, result in leaning towards tactics and quick wins over long-term strategy. How do you personally sort of like navigate that, or how do companies navigate that?
0: And that's that's an, that's absolutely, um, you know, trade shift is a is a long-term focused company. So uh, my job is always to start with alignment. And the first alignment is alignment with the board, alignment with the founders and the CEO of uh, and, and our exec team of where we are actually trying to go as, as a company. Uh, once we get that alignment and an agreement, uh, then we can actually help to drive it. So it becomes uh, right from the point of how much money do we want to raise to how we want to structure the company uh, for us to be able to uh, get to our goals. Um, so once once I get the sort of alignment, um, my uh, thought has been uh, to um, to almost kind of separate out teams that focus on execution of the tactical. You know, let's get the quarter done, and and the team that's looking at the long term and building maybe the products or the offerings for the long term. So my team will. Uh, incubate, will influence, will sponsor sort of strategic, long-term focused projects, um, and will partner with the more tactical teams uh, whenever they need to. So we've sort of tried to separate out the two uh, somewhat, and and yet keep them together from having the same long-term vision where we're we're trying to get to.
1: I guess that kind of ties in uh, I mean doing looking at the long term and short term when you're setting the strat- strategy for the year uh, versus let's say with the long term vision and the 5 year plan um you, you know uh, getting that uh, alignment and um you you know for for both is is key but how do you, how do you like guard guard it from from pivots like how often do you, uh, like, six months down the line, see, like, uh, or you know, guard it from, let's say, a change of direction? You know, maybe um, somebody new comes in and says, we should be doing this, like, you know, uh, and, and disagrees with the, with the strategy, right? I'm sure people have seen that before. What, what, what do you do to, to guard it?
0: Yeah, so, so pivots are definitely part of the plan and, and not, not something to be guarded against. So we embrace uh, pivots. And I think one of the things that's been really important is is alignment with the CEO and founder. So uh, him and I are definitely on the same page of what we are trying to do, and and that absolutely creates uh, full alignment. But I, I think in terms of pivot, what we do we do two things to help us be all on the same page of when we actually want to pivot and when we don't want to. One is um, I think surgical go to market. So uh, you know, figuring out what's working, double down on it. But if something is not working, if something is not getting traction, then we all agree to pivot on it. And the way we've done this is, and, and by the way, this was actually quite chaotic about three four years ago uh, when I was you know first joined TradeShift. And what we've actually tried to do is create a adopt a framework to help us make those decisions better and uh, in, a, in an aligned way. So um, if you've ever heard of Jeffrey Moore's Zone to Win, uh, so he actually has a framework in there which we've adopted. And frameworks are uh, great in the sense they bring p- people together. And as a company, we actually have quarterly meetings where we agree on, here are the things that we are driving for, here are the things we're going to pivot on or, or, uh, or you know, do more of. Do less of or do more of. and And so that's been really, I think, instrumental for us to actually create more focus, create more alignment and and do the pivots where needed, and uh, execute and drive for growth where needed as well.
1: You have obviously mentioned about um, TradeShift being this like uh, a company that uh, thinks uh, about the long term, right, and long term strategy. Um, I I have sort of you know read recently, um, you know, in a few places. I think uh, certainly in the case. I believe Netflix, uh, and I think even I I was reading an article I think about NerdWallet where they're saying. Uh, really just you can't really plan for much longer or shouldn't really plan for much longer than between six to kind of nine months, right? Because you just don't really know what's going to happen kind of next year and, you know, five-year plan doesn't necessarily make sense. What is your, like, opinion around uh, such things? Obviously, it it, it may be working for Netflix if they're uh, um, still sticking to that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I think uh, think there's truth in that. I I think you have to have a five-year vision and mission and your plans need to change every year based on uh, what you're seeing in the market and on the opportunities in the market for partnerships, for acquisitions, for you know areas that have opened up. So um, one of the things we've spent considerable time at TradeShift is actually being very clear about what our vision and mission statement is. So vision is definitely very, very long term and uh, actually inspirational. So our vision is we want to connect all the companies of the world to create economic opportunities for all. So we actually almost check you know, um, this thing that we're doing, is it going to actually help us with the vision? But the mission actually is very concrete, uh, and, and it informs us of how we should think of our long-term plans. So our mission is we want to help companies uh, get access to digital global trade, uh, to get access to cheaper financing, and to become more efficient. So those three things actually are almost guiding principles for us as we, as we build our plans. So we, we absolutely do not have five-year plans. Uh, it, it's almost impossible to do that. We do have one-year plans and 18-months plan, and even those every quarter, we actually assess them uh, in what we call, we call them uh, QBRs that we have, which are cross-functional QBRs, where we assess each of the um, plans that we have and adjust them accordingly.
1: You mentioned earlier, I guess, we probably sort of covered this off, but, um, you know, it's not typical, certainly for like startups to have a a CSO, right? Uh, And instead, it's more likely a a COO role, um, you know, might be sort of more uh, appropriate. So like, what is your advice around, you know, to founders and CEOs who actually often, I, I guess. Uh, you know, are the, the 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 principal sort of people uh, like driving the strategy of the company, um, you know, for uh, for a long period, uh, as to when they should then you know first start to hire somebody, let's say external, is whether it's a uh, you know a director of strategy, a VP of strategy, or like ultimately when they're big enough, uh, a CSO.
0: Yeah. So. I, I think you, you're absolutely right. It's the founder is, your, is the first C, CSO. The founder is the first product person. The founder is the first of everything, right? And, and um, honestly, I think uh, names um, of roles are very flexible in startups. You know, I think somebody could look at my role and say it is, it is very much a COO role or you know, a CEO might actually uh, participate in a lot of strategy work um, I think what really matters actually is, is, is a person. Uh, and I think what's really, really important is when founders uh, look for uh, their, um, you know, the, the role that's going to be their second, uh, you know, in command, that person needs to be 100% aligned to them and, and needs to have the same vision of where they're taking the company um, and and calling that whatever role I I think matters less. I think based on your business model, you may choose to call it a CSO role versus CSCL. So it's I think the people matter more than anything
1: yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you'll uh, you'll be joining us uh, on September the eleventh. So I mean, uh, that's about twenty two days from now, but uh, depending on when when people are listening to uh, to the podcast, September the eleventh is uh, is the date that we're holding a, our first conference in San Francisco. Um, what are some of the things that you'll be speaking about there?
0: So I'm very excited. this is my first SaAS talk, so it'll be uh, super cool to to participate in it. Um so the topic that I'm actually hosting is uh, is about how uh, companies, when their you know focus is, is a double-edged sword. So you focus on top line growth and you you're growing the company, you actually forget about the customers you just uh, won and and don't pay enough attention. and that becomes a problem, especially when you're creating a recurring business and you want to keep your customers happy. So we are talking about how uh, founders and companies are, uh, doing both, right? Uh, looking at top line growth, getting new logos, but at the same time creating customer success, customer happiness as as a baseline. So I actually have uh, Shane from Intercom, Omar from Chargebee, and Jason. Jason I actually know, used to work with them uh, from Gonemly, um, and and we'll be actually having a very um, a very lively panel. So please come join us.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll, 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 I'll for one certainly will be there and uh, looking forward to uh, watching that panel. So um, uh, that, that'll be great. Can't wait for, for West Coast on the 11th of September. And um, a final question as we come to the, the end of the podcast, we always ask our guests, how do you stay healthy and sane on your journey? Um, so what is your way?
0: Right. I think uh, a few things. Uh, one is, Um, I feel and I've done I've been guilty of this of becoming so heads down that I don't look up to anything around me so one of the things I actively do is actually spend time uh, talking to founders mentoring them and helping them and that gives me perspective and hopefully helps them so I think that's very important for every single person uh, to do but on on a more health side and and um uh, keeping sane side, uh, what I there are two things that I spend uh, a lot of time on. Uh, one is actually meditation. That's for my own inner connection and inner peace. And and second is actually my people connection. So I have a bunch of hiking friends. Friends I hike with, and and we hike on a on a regular basis. In fact, uh, this Thursday I'm going for a seven day hike to Machu Picchu. Very excited about that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Very cool. Life goals uh, being uh, achieved there. So um, that, that's good stuff. Um, well, uh, Sarika, uh, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person at Sasstock West Coast on uh, September the 11th. Uh, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. I look forward to seeing you too. Thanks for having me.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SAS Revolution show and you picked up some valuable lessons from Sarika. As a reminder, she'll be joining us at Coast on September the 11th in San Francisco, moderating a panel about practices, how to not simply attract, but also retain customers. Grab a ticket now at sas.com forward slash westcoast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.